called No Compromise. It's the story of the life of Keith Green, who lived back in the 70s and passed away tragically. Um, But just his passion for Christ will inspire you and encourage you, I hope. So just a quick, simple read uh, for you to have. Kids, uh, if you want, Patrick Lingle, who, by the way, is a birthday boy today. Happy birthday, Patrick. So... Uh, kids, you can go with him for Children's Church and uh, go head out that direction. And parents, limited amounts of candy and caffeine, I promise. They'll be ready for sit nicely at the restaurant for lunch with you later. Um, I'm joking. We don't give them candy uh, on that. But kids, go with him. We're going to come now to the Lord and just ask his blessing on the different things that go on in our lives. And also to thank him. Easter morning was really easy for us. Any of you all run into police blockades on the way? Fear of your life, imprisonment, nothing. We got up and we made a decision to come or not to come. We have brothers and sisters around the world, Christians, who are cowering in back rooms, hiding in houses, because if governments knew that they were worshiping the risen king, they would be imprisoned or or persecuted or worse. And so we take for granted what is so costly. And I pray that we, we gain a different perspective. That this becomes something incredibly important and central to our lives and not a snap-on. That, oh yeah, and church. Oh yeah, and Jesus over here. But it really is that thing which drives us and motivates us. So let's go to this great God and thank him this morning. Father, We do praise you this morning for your love and your mercy, for the beauty of creation that we could stand out this morning on the sand and look out over the ocean and see the sun peeking through the clouds, to see the dolphins playing in the waves, to to feel the wind, and to know that you made it all and you sustain it all. And nothing happens outside of your incredible providence. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us here, that we've gathered in your name here at this church, at this time, in this location, by your design. And there's no mistakes. There's not one person who is here by accident. But you have drawn us here because you want to tell us something about yourself today. You want to reveal yourself to us in a new and profound way. You're condescending to be among us, and we are so humbled and thankful and overwhelmed by it. And God, we want to be changed as well. We don't want to walk into the throne room of the God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and be the same. We want our countenance changed. We want our lives changed. We want the way in which we do everything changed because we beheld your glory. And we saw your love for us in Christ. And we have been ministered to by your spirit. Father, there are families that look so good today, sitting here, but marriages are being torn apart. Husbands and wives aren't talking. Children are in rebellion against their parents. Parents uh, are overbearing on their children. There's tension and loss. Father, there are others who are wrestling with cancer and with depression and with other things in their lives which, which steals from them their joy. Father, would you come powerfully and remind us that you are here And that you are ever present in the lives uh, of your people. And that you will never snuff out uh, a wick or you will never crush a bruised reed. But you're gentle and tender. But yet you are the God who moves mountains. 
And we need a mountain-moving God because the things we face, we can't move on our own. And so we praise you today. Thank you for all your many blessings to us. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are celebrating the same thing we celebrate, that the tomb is empty, that Christ is risen from the dead and he has ascended into heaven and that one day he'll come back again. And Father, we pray for their protection. We pray uh, that they would be strengthened even in their persecution and that the word of God would go strongly around the world. Father, go before us now as we hear from your word and we wrestle with deep and profound things. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul, who was not one of the original 12 disciples, but was a persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee, a religious leader of his day, and he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. It's a a very uh, well-known story, and Saul was his name then, was forever changed in the presence of Christ, and he uh, was now called Paul. And he went out and he began to minister uh, to the churches around the Mediterranean Rim, especially in Asia Minor. And as he established those churches and preached, he would write back correspondence and letters. And this is a letter that he wrote about 20 years after Jesus was raised from the dead that he wrote to the churches in Corinth. And he was challenging the churches in Corinth about what does it mean to live the Christian life? But really he was saying, folks, you've lost uh, you've lost your needle, uh, you've lost your compass, you, you're, you're just sort of getting away on things, and we need to come back to the most central things. And so he begins this section uh, here in chapter 15 uh, of saying, this is the foremost stuff, this is the important stuff, and we're going to deal with it together. There's some hard edges in this today, I'm not going to candy coat it for you, we're going to be challenged. Some of you are coming here today, and I'm so thankful that you're here, but you're coming because you want to feel good and say, hey, I went to church on Easter. I want you to feel that way too, but I want to push you farther than that. I want to challenge you to deal with profound things. I want you to to deal with the resurrection. Because you see, the reality is this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It is the watershed event in all of history. It is the event, it is the dividing line. Either you believe it to be true or you don't. And the implications of your belief impact your life, not only here, but for all eternity. And so that's what we're wrestling with today. So it's good news. We know how it ends. But it's also challenging news. So I hope that you're uh, ready for the challenge. So let's now look together uh, at God's word written by the Apostle Paul. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so we believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Easter, that is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Easter is either true or it's not. It is either the most profound event that ever happened, or it's not. It can't be both. I remember talking to a young woman at Rhodes College in Memphis and saying to her something to that effect. And I said, you see, two and two either equals four or it doesn't. And she said, why does it have to equal four? I'm not smart enough to answer her question. I was very simple. I said, well, if I have two apples over here and two apples over there and I bring them together, I have four apples, right? She goes, yeah, I guess so. I said, well, I can't have three apples if I have four, correct? And I can't have five if I only have four. She said, yeah, I guess that's true. Well, it's the same way with the resurrection. It's the same way with Easter. Either it's true or it's not true. Either it's true and it has implications into all of history and into your life in particular, or it's not true and it doesn't matter. It's one or the other. It can't be both. It can't matter a little. It can't sort of matter. It it can't matter only when things are tough in your life. It, It can't matter only on your deathbed. It matters all the time. Or else it doesn't matter at all. And so the question becomes, on which side of the fence are you? On which side of the aisle? Are you on the side that says, It's just a wonderful group of stories in the Bible. They're nice. They make me feel better. They help me to live my life. There's wonderful platitudes and principles in there, but it's not really true. Come on, Bill. You're not telling this modern mind of mine, this postmodern, realized, uh, evolved mind to believe in simple stories like that, that a God could make all of this come into existence, really? Uh, that he could cause floods to happen, that, that he could make people come out of, of Egypt and then do this to the Red Sea. Come on, you really want me to believe all that stuff? And that Jesus came and he was actually God and man together and that he lived a perfect life for 33 years and then he died and then he rose from the dead. Bill, no one rises from the dead. Come on, you're, you're a simpleton. I'm advanced. Give me something, please tell me. You have something more than that. It reminds me uh, of that great scene uh, in A Few Good Men when he's sitting there and he goes, please tell me that you have something more than that. He's just so condescending. And here's my response to you. I don't. I don't have anything more than the revealed word of God which says that it's true and that it's a historic fact and that it really happened can you have some water somewhere? 
I don't want 10 people to go run and get me water, but um, thank you. It's like Rubio. Oh, um, some of you are going, who? Get it. <laughs> but um, I probably didn't even say his name right. Uh, it's true or it's not true. In Rome, in the early part of about 2,000 years ago, just after Christ was raised, in the first couple of centuries, plagues began to come into Rome. And as the plagues hit, what the people found out in Rome was this, or in all of the Roman Empire. They didn't know a lot about medicine, but there's a wonderful book called The Rise of Christianity. And in it, there was a doctor, his accounts are given. And he taught and he said this, here's what we've learned. That the plague and the sickness and death is most concentrated in cosmopolitan areas. So what you need to do is get out of the cosmopolitan areas. Get out of the cities and go to Hilton Head. Go to the mountains. Go to your other homes. If you have means, get out. Because you see, a pagan worldview was this. All you've got is this life, and so you better be very careful and steward it well. So if you don't want to die in this life and be incredibly unsure about the life to come, then get out of the cities. Get away from these sick people. And so what happened was people began to head to the coasts, and they headed to the more unpopulated areas, and they left their loved ones. And I imagine there were conversations like this. Sweetie, Mommy and Daddy really love you, but we're going to go away for a little while, and we hope you get better. But if you don't, just know mommy and daddy love you. Bye. Take care of the house. Or sweetheart, I know we've been married for 50 years and I do love you, but I got to go to the beach because I don't want to get sick and die with you. And so they left in droves. Their worldview demanded that they did. But guess who stayed in the cities? There was this little cult that had begun out of Palestine. It was called Christianity. And all these poor people and uneducated and even some of the wealthy and educated, they had a worldview that said, we're not afraid of death. Who cares? Death, where's your sting? And they stayed. And they ministered to the sick and to those who were dying. And they found out something amazing. If you give a a person who's ill water and food and warmth and care for them, many, many times they are made well. There's plenty of other times when both the individual and the Christian died. But they stayed. And guess what happened? People would ask the question, why did you stay? Why are you caring for me? Why are you ministering to my need? My family, who said they loved me more than anybody else could possibly love me in this world, they bailed on me. They left and ran to the coast. They ran to the, city, uh, to the mountains. But you're staying and you don't even know me. Why are you still here? And the response was something like this. Because Jesus is alive and rose from the dead, we're not afraid of death. And we believe that he can actually heal you. But even if he doesn't heal you in this life, there is a life to come in which there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more goodbyes. So we're staying put. Now fast forward a little while. People come back from the coast. Sweetheart, you're still alive. That's awesome. Mommy and Daddy are so glad you're here. Uh, we're, we're, you did a good job keeping the house up. That's awesome. You want to go out to dinner? Mom, Dad, I'm good. I'm going to go hang out with my new family. I'm going to go hang out with the ones who actually really loved me and gave themselves for me. Because, see, you didn't love me. I was an inconvenience to you and a threat to you. But these people loved me. 
And Christianity exploded in Rome. Rome was turned on its head because Christians believed in the resurrection of the dead. It is the salient point in history. You need to know what you believe about it because it will drive how you live your life. Does that make sense? I doubt that that was an evangelism technique for the church in Rome at the time. Hey, guys, got a good evangelism team? Come around. We're going to hang out with Black Plague folks. Some of you may die. Anybody want to volunteer? We can't even get people to volunteer for the fun stuff. Can you imagine trying to get people to volunteer for that? No, it was just a natural outflow of their belief system. Just as natural as it was for the pagan to leave and go to the coast. They were simply acting on what they believed. Lisa and I were taught a long time ago in our church that proper orthodoxy, what you believe, your, your worldview, leads to proper orthopraxy, how you live. What you believe informs and drives how you live and act. So the questions become, why are you doing that? I don't know. That doesn't work for me. Why didn't you do that? I don't know. Why are you here? I wish we could sit and just ask that question. Why are you here this morning? I don't know. Why are you here? You came here for a reason. Your belief system drove you here for a reason. And I don't know what that is. But what we're going to talk about briefly today is simply this. Easter and the resurrection was either meaningless and just a set of principles and values and niceties and platitudes. It didn't really happen, but it's something that just kind of helps us get through life. Or it actually happened. It was an historic event and there were witnesses and we now have to deal with it and what are the implications of that. Okay, so those two things really briefly and really quickly today. First is this, most, I shouldn't say most, many churches today preaching right now across our country are preaching that Easter is just a bunch of platitudes and niceties and principles. It didn't really happen. It's okay if you want to believe it's a historic event, but you don't have to. You can still reap the benefits of Jesus and the benefits of the empty tomb even if you don't believe that there really was a Jesus or that there really is an empty tomb. Because you see, what it's really teaching us is this, that after death comes life, that acorns fall from trees and they go into the ground. But guess what happens? They grow into new trees. That there's a storm, but guess what comes after the storm? A rainbow. And a rainbow is nice and it makes you feel good because there was a storm. That in difficulty, always look for the silver lining. There's always got to be something good that comes out of it. Don't be such a a negative Nelly. Just look up, cheer up, and you'll find something good within it. It's just the circle of life. It just happens and happens. And it's okay because what it is is it just gives us a wonderful pattern for life. Is that enough to sustain your life? Would that be enough to keep you in Rome? Dealing with people who were dying? Heck no. I'd be out the door. Like, hey, Lise, love you. Hope you're around when I get back. Because my worldview would demand me do that. If I stayed, it would have to be counter to my worldview. So what has happened in the world today, and especially in the Christian church, and I won't go long on it, but beginning in the last century, there were men uh, like, and these are names that you, you should know, by the way, because of their profound impact Uh, on the church around the world. 
Men like Heidegger and Schleiermacher uh, and Bultmann. Anybody heard of those guys? <laughs> Two of you. Um, you should know. Because here's what those men said about the Bible. It doesn't matter if it's real. That the modern mind needs a Bible that makes more sense. So what we need to do is demythologize the Bible. We need to take out all of those parts which are difficult. We've got to take out the mystery. We need to take out the Red Sea. Uh, we need to take out the flood. We need to take out this whole creation thing. I mean, modern, postmodern minds, really? Come on. Bultmann said, take all the mystery out of it. Take all the myth out of it. And then all that's left uh, is the principles of the scripture. And what you need to believe in are the principles of scripture. David and Goliath, who cares if it really happened or didn't happen? As long as you know this, you should face your giants strongly and boldly. Go tell that to your seven-year-old. Go face your bully out there. Guess what he's going to come home with? A black eye and a bloody nose and go, What happened? Because David and Goliath really was never about David and Goliath and bullies. It was all about Jesus being our David and coming and defeating Goliath, who is ultimately death himself. And so it's all about that. But we send our kids out. Okay, go on. Why bunny rabbits and eggs? Because Easter's just about new life, right? It's just about spring. It's just about all these wonderful things. A fraternity brother of mine uh, up in Charleston uh, went around the streets of Charleston not too long ago with a camera and a, a microphone. And he went and stopped people in carriages, and he stopped them on the side of the roads. And he said, hey, do you mind me asking you a question? What's the meaning of Easter? And for two minutes and 48 seconds on the YouTube video, I don't know, something about a church, Easter bunnies, being with family, ham and deviled eggs, yeah, there you go. Uh, I got ham and deviled eggs at home too. But that ain't the meaning of it. That's just the topping on top of it. But all around Charleston, a good southern churched city, no one said Jesus Christ died and raised from the tomb and it's the hope of life itself. So here's the question for you. Are you wondering why there's no vitality in your life, why you're not passionate about the gospel, why you're not passionate about Jesus Christ, or why you're sitting around and you look at other people and you look at me and you go, what's with that guy? What's with those people? They're hearing and getting something that I'm not getting. It all comes down to the crux of this. It's at the tomb. It's at the resurrection. Because if your life isn't vital in Christ, it basically means you have an incredibly small cross or not one at all, and there's no hope in the middle of it. It's just a bunch of platitudes. Here, then, is the question. Are those platitudes and principles satisfying for you? Are they enough? Just to say, buck up. It's going to get better tomorrow. Hey, there'll be a little bunny rabbit coming next year. Eat another egg. It'll be fine. Because guess what happens? Not every acorn that drops into the ground becomes a tree. Not every person who gets cancer sees a silver lining. Many of them die. Not every person who has marital difficulties grows stronger from it. Sometimes it rips them apart and they're devastated by it. Sometimes things don't make sense. And you come to the scriptures and you go, make me feel better. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the weak. It doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if the cross is an historic 
event. And that's what Paul is saying. The cross and Easter and the tomb are historic. They actually happened. It is, it is in history and you have to deal with it. 9-11 is etched forever in our history and it has impacted our country's both policies and individual lives. Why? Because it happened. It did happen, right? The towers did fall, right? Thousands of lives were lost, right? People were devastated by it, right? You see, it was an event. And we can look back and say, it just happened a few years ago. That's how Paul approaches this. Paul is coming in and he's saying this. He uses a word preach that's different from the word teach. When you hear the word preach, you think about what I'm doing. And you probably start to fall asleep already. But that's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that's a different word. What Bill's doing is he's teaching. Preaching was a different word, and what it meant was to herald an event. It was to cry out, a town crier. It was uh, walking in and saying, Rome has defeated Sparta. It, It was saying, there's a new Caesar on the throne. It was saying, there's a new law that's been enacted. A new tax has come. What the herald and what the crier, the preacher, was doing was stating a fact. He wasn't interpreting the facts. He was just simply stating a fact. And that's what Paul says here. What we have done is we've stated fact. Now, are there, are there principles and values that come out of the cross? Yes, there are. But it comes out. They're derived from the belief in the cross. You have to deal with the cross first. And so that's what Paul was saying. In the news industry, there's soft news and there's hard news. And every night on NBC or CNN or whatever it is that you watch, you'll see the hard news and the soft news. The soft news is something like this. Seven out of ten Americans are fat, and here's a good way to lose weight. Seven out of ten Americans are having problems in their marriage. Here's some ideas of how to have a better marriage. Oh, it's Easter time. We brought in a bouquet specialist of how to make a pretty bouquet on the, in the middle of your table. That's soft news. Those are principles. Christianity has soft news. But primarily what Paul was saying was, I'm bringing the hard news. Jesus Christ was real. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now deal with that. That's what he was saying. He was saying, how are you going to respond to that? And some people would respond and go, we don't believe in a resurrection from the dead. He went, oh, how about this? I wrote this letter, he wrote this letter, Corinthians, 20 years after the fact. And he came as a good litigator and a lawyer. He said, well, you don't have to believe me. You see, because when Jesus rose from the dead, he went and met Peter, Cephas, and he he showed himself to him. And then he showed himself to the rest of the disciples. And then he showed himself to 500 men and women. Uh, And they're still alive, many of them. So if you don't believe me, that's okay. Go talk to some of the 12. They're still around. And if you don't believe the 12, go talk to the 500. They're still around. And if you don't believe the 500, well, James is in Jerusalem, and many of the apostles are still in Jerusalem. And also, by the way, he revealed himself to me. So there is a host of witnesses out there. You see, there's a hoax theory that says this, oh, Christianity is just a hoax. A few people got caught up in it. Well, no hoax theorist would ever say that 500 people get caught up in a hoax. There's no way. One or two, absolutely. But 500, and that's what Paul was saying. When Watergate came out, it was very interesting. Everybody was keeping the secret. But then what happened? One person talked. And then guess what? Another person talked. 
And another person talked. And another person talked. And all denied what really happened and said, it was Nixon. When they got pushed, came to shove, when all of a sudden they were threatened with imprisonment and treason and perjury and all of that, they went, nope, it wasn't true. All of that was a lie and a sham. It was Nixon. He did it. Not one of the apostles recanted. Not one of the 500 recanted. Paul never recanted. All were pressed, even to the point of death. All of the apostles, except for, Jan, or in fact for John, were martyred for their faith. And not one of them said it was Nixon. Not one of them said, okay, it's not true. The body's hidden over there. Because they knew it was true. Paul was making a profound argument. And he was saying, you don't believe me? Fine. Think about this. Joseph Smith began Mormonism by angels coming and speaking to him. And if you ask Joseph Smith, any other witnesses? No, just me. So basically what Joseph Smith is telling us is this. Hey guys, on this one, just trust me. You're going to have to trust me on this one. Muhammad was in a cave. Anybody else in the cave with him? No. Just trust me on this one. Just trust me. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, said, I want everybody to see this. You're not going to be able to accuse us of doing this in a corner or doing this privately or doing it out of the sight of, the, of anybody. We're doing it smack dab in the middle of Palestine and thousands of people are going to see it and see me and you can go talk to them anytime you want to until they die. You can go talk to them. Interesting, Paul in Acts chapter 26 was talking to two of the Roman leaders, a guy named Festus and a guy named Agrippa. Festus was a Roman and Agrippa uh, was a Jew who was raised into Roman power. And Festus was looking at Paul and saying, Paul, you have lost it, my friend. This thing has gone to your head, risen from the dead. Really? Now you've lost it. I was tracking with you pretty good about this whole moral uh, leader kind of thing. But now he's risen from the dead. You've lost it, Paul. Now, Paul didn't defend himself to Festus very interestingly. You know what he did? He looked at Agrippa and he said, Hey, Agrippa, you were there. You explain it to Festus. He said, Agrippa, you lived in Palestine at the time. You were there 20 years ago. You know what happened. You tell him. And Agrippa, with all of his boldness and manliness that he had, looked at Paul and went, Paul, you're trying to make me a Christian. He basically said, I'm not touching that. He could not refute the facts. He just didn't want to deal with them. So here's the question for you today. How are you going to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ was a historic figure who lived on this earth, who died in your place, who went to a tomb and rose from the dead, and that tomb is still empty? How are you going to deal with that? It has an implication on your life. Here are some positive implications that it has on your life. One, you don't have to fear death anymore. It's gone. That's why Paul later in this chapter said this. Death, and you, even, you said it with me. Death, where's your sting? He mocked death. He said, death, you think that you can growl at me and make me afraid, but you can't anymore because I know something about you. Death was destroyed by death. Jesus Christ killed death through his death and resurrection. There's a great uh, introduction. It's called The Death of Death and the Death of Life, in the Death of Christ. 
And, and it speaks and it says, death was swallowed up. Its sting was taken away. Most people are driven by a fear of death in their lives. I saw some really good friends of mine yesterday, or Friday when I was in Rock Hill. Every Monday I get an email, Lisa gets it oftentimes too, from B and Larry Loftus. Bill, we love you, we miss you, how can we pray for you? And B and Larry came over, they're like grandparents to me, and they came over and sat in the house and we were talking, and I asked them how their son Bert was and how he was dealing with the loss of his son Josh a year ago. And um, they said, not really well. They said, but you can really be praying for Josh's little brothers who were left behind. Because one of the brothers has a um, condition that sometimes makes him go to the hospital. And he was in the hospital recently. And he looked at his mom and dad and he said, I don't want to die like Josh. I just want to go home. And the littlest one came to his mom and dad and said, Mommy, don't let big brother die. And then I'm the only one left here. I don't want to be alone. Death had gripped that family. And B and Larry, such awesome grandparents, brought their little grandsons to them. And they said, acorns fall on the ground. No. What would that have done? They came around and they said, I know it hurts. But Josh is alive. And he's with Jesus. And you're going to see him again one day. Because there's hope. Because Jesus raised from the dead, there's hope that even if you die, you get to live. That there's something beyond this life. And though those little simple children didn't get it fully, they got it enough. To not be so afraid anymore. The resurrection of Jesus Christ takes away your fear and it emasculates death. It may roar, but what you have to do is go, oh, death, where's your sting? Because let me tell you, death, you couldn't keep my Savior in the ground. And if you couldn't keep him in the ground, then you can't keep all of those who believe in him in the ground either. And we're going to rise one day with him. And because of that, it is going to inform how I live on this life. And I promise you from this day forward, I am no longer going to be living in fear. I'm going to live boldly, and I'm going to live out loud, and I'm going to live in such a way that doesn't tempt death, but I'm not afraid of death either. I'm not encouraging guys to go out and be thrill seekers. If you go do the zip line this week, tie the knots. I'm not saying tempt death. But what I am saying is this. You don't have to be afraid anymore. What's your greatest fear? Jesus said, I've taken care of it. I've taken care of it for you. And he promises you this. I will never lose one of you. Not one of you. That informs how you live. Then you can do great things in life when you're not afraid of dying. So it gives you power and victory. It takes away fear. And it gives you a hope to live this life. Some of you are here today and you need that hope. You've been doing everything you can to try to preserve your life. You've been doing everything you can to try to say that this life is all there is and there is such a profound, deep dissatisfaction with it all. Or you have been demanding so much from your spouses, so much from your kids, so much from this world that it can't bear the weight of your soul. Only the risen Savior can bear the weight of your soul. 
And he says, believe in me. And I promise, I promise, I'll never lose you. There was a story that I heard, and we'll end with this illustration. And the man's name, he was a pastor in the 19th century. And his name was Reuben Torrey. And Reuben Torrey was climbing on a mountain. And he had his team, and they were all you know, tied together and climbing up on this mountain. And he said that he looked across on a peak nearby, and he saw another five-man team all harnessed together climbing up the mountain. And you can imagine, I mean, this is the 1900s, 1800s. And so they didn't have all the equipment that we have. And as he was looking across on the other peak, he saw the fifth man, the lowest man, slip and begin to fall off of the cliff. And as that man fell, his line caught. When his line was tied to whom? The guy in front of him. And all of a sudden, that guy's line pulled. And he was pulled off the mountain. Now two men dangling. And there were three still on the mountain. And the first man looked down and he saw what was happening and he knew what was going to come. And so he took his pickaxe and he drove it into the side of the mountain, into the ice, into the snow as much as he could. And he held on with everything he could and he was waiting for it to hit. And sure enough, a couple of seconds later, boom, it hit. The line pulled tight. Ribs began to crack. He began to bleed. He was holding on and screaming. But he held on and held on and held on. And he saved the lives of his four friends. That is the picture of what Christ has done for you. He has said, I've got you. I have fixed you into eternity itself. I am already there and I am holding on to you through time and space and I have you. And I promise I will never, ever let go of you. My body was crushed for you. My body was bloodied for you. My life was given for you so that you could have life if and only if you believe in me, not believe about me. But believe me. Christianity is not a philosophy to be followed. It is a person to be loved. It is not a set of rules and platitudes. It is a person of Jesus Christ who stands there in front of you and says, I'm real. How are you going to deal with me? Here's my hope for you today. That you'll fall down in front of him and go, I give up. I let go of the rope. I let go of the axe. I'm going to trust your grip on me. Take away my fear and give me life that I need through faith in him. Let's pray. God, what a wondrous story it is. Father, I'm so grieved this morning that around the world, and most especially in our own country, there are thousands of people gathered together and all they're hearing are little simple stories of bunnies and of rainbows and new life uh, that comes in the springtime with the pretty flowers. When what we need to hear is that Jesus is alive. That he's alive. And that he's coming back again one day. And that we can have life in him. And that the tomb has been destroyed. The door has been blown away. That it's empty. And we can go visit it if we want to. But we don't need to because we know it's there. And we know that you're seated in the heavenly places. And you love us and you have us. Father, would you minister to us powerfully by your spirit today? Would you restore lives in this room? Would you bring lost people to you that they'd be found, the broken that they would be healed, the wounded, those in bondage to be freed? God, would they find it all in you today through Jesus Christ, your son? What an awesome day it is. Easter, a day that forever changed the world. Would it forever change our lives now? So we pray to Christ be the glory. Amen.